Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. We're going to open up God's Word now. We're looking at the book of Psalms. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it. If you haven't got one, we've got some baskets all the way down the aisles. Uh, Please feel free to grab a Bible from there. If you haven't got one at home, you are more than welcome to take that one home as your own Bible. Uh, So Psalm 51 is a Psalm of David, and uh, it's a a Psalm that he wrote after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So it's quite a well-known Psalm. And we're looking at verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 to 13. Uh, So let's read. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then jumping down to verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Three of you are good. It's warm in here today. It's going to be hard to concentrate, so you're going to have to concentrate extra hard today. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you as we uh, go through this incredible passage, and I'm sure that each of us will be encouraged as we do that. Today, as uh, Hayden mentioned a moment ago, we're continuing our summer series called Life Real, and we're focusing on four Psalms in the month of January. In week one, I mentioned that one of the things I love about the Psalms is the absolute transparency of the authors, uh, particularly uh, King David. We can kind of go through the Psalms and we ride the roller coaster of his emotions and his faith. We see the highs and the lows, and it's really quite beautiful to watch. And so as we look at it, we see in these Psalms, there's a complete honesty about what he's going through. King David is not one of those guys who's going to fake it until he makes it. He's just completely honest with God. And so here in these Psalms, we see him outlining his doubts, bearing his heart and soul, sharing his fears and emotions, and he asks many questions of God. Questions like, why? God, where are you? God, how long? And I think that's an amazing, beautiful thing, because I think it's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with him. A completely transparent, honest relationship where we can ask the difficult questions and expect that he will answer us in incredible ways. And so that's what we see in the book of Psalms. He knows what we're going through, doesn't he? He knows how we're feeling, and so we might as well be honest about it with him. Today we're looking at Psalm 51. And in the words of one commentator, he says this, As an expression of a heart overwhelmed by shame, humbled and broken by guiltiness, and yet saved from despair through repentant faith in the mercy of God, this poem or this psalm, is unsurpassed. It's a beautiful psalm that was written by King David in one of the darkest seasons of his life. And in order to understand what this psalm is all about, we need to go back and look at the background. And the sister passage of Psalm 51 is found in the book of 2 Samuel and starting in chapter 11. 
And this is how the chapter starts. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, King David stayed home. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. Now the beautiful woman was named Bathsheba and she was bathing on the rooftop and so we probably should call her Bathsheba. But he looks over and when I was in Israel recently, we went to a place that is believed to be the ruins of King David's palace. And so we could stand in the ruins and we could look out over a hill down below that kind of came up like that. And on the hill, there's a whole bunch of houses and many of the houses today still have rooftops on them. And so as we were standing there in those ruins, looking out from David's palace, we could kind of imagine what he could see. We weren't imagining Bathsheba, um, but we were imagining the scenery and, and what sort of vision he would have had of those rooftops as he looked out on that day. And so here's this king. He's meant to be at war with his men, but instead he's home. And in the middle of the night, he looks and he sees this beautiful woman. Now, this was the beginning of a disastrous story for David and many others in the story. And it proved to be an incident that was one of the greatest and biggest mistakes of his life. You see, Bathsheba, that beautiful woman on the rooftop, was married. She was married to a man called Uriah, and he was off in battle on behalf of King David. And that night, King David slept with Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. Now, once David realized the mess he created, he came up with a cover-up plan. And so he sent an order to his commander on the battlefield. And he said, I want you to send Uriah home. And he wanted him to be sent home with the aim of getting him to sleep with his wife and therefore convince him that the child that Bathsheba was carrying was actually his and not David's. He was trying to cover up his mess. And so Uriah arrived back and David summoned him into his presence and he starts with some general chit-chat. He asked him how the war was going. He asked after the men. And then he said, clean up yourself, Uriah. And now that you're back, go home and spend some time with your wife. But the next morning, David found out that he didn't do it. He instead slept at the entrance of the palace. And when David asked him, why didn't you go and spend time with your wife? He said that he couldn't eat, drink, and make love to his wife when all the other men were sleeping in tents on the battlefield. He said, as surely as you live... I will not do such a thing. And so David moved on from plan A to plan B. Plan B was to keep Uriah home one more night, to get him drunk this time, and once again try and get him into bed with his wife. But again, it didn't work. And so David sent Uriah back to the battlefield. This was plan C. C could stand for cruel or um, catastrophic. And so he sent Uriah back to the battlefield and he's told his commander, I want you to put Uriah on the front line of the battle where it's the fiercest. And when he's out there on the front, I want you to get all the other men to withdraw from him and leave him there at the fiercest place of the battle so that he will be killed. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah is killed on the battlefield. David then takes Bathsheba as his wife and she gave birth to a son. It's a shocking story. It's a terrible thing David had done, and yet he goes on with life thinking no one's seen it, no one knows that he got away with it until the next chapter. And we read of a story of Nathan the prophet, and he confronts David by telling him a story. And he tells him a story of a rich man and a poor man. 
And he says the rich man uh, has pretty much everything he wants. He's got heaps of cattle. He's got heaps of sheep. He's very wealthy. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. It even sounds cute when you say it, doesn't it? Little ewe lamb. He had one little ewe lamb, and he loved this little lamb. It says he raised it himself. It grew up with him and his children as part of the family. It says that the lamb shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. The passage says that this little lamb was like a daughter to him. And so he's got this beautiful little lamb. Now, one day, the rich man has a visitor. And the visitor comes from afar, and he comes to visit the rich man. And the custom was, when a visitor comes, you slaughter one of your animals and you prepare a meal. You know, roast beef or roast lamb or roast goat or something. Um, I'd, I'd like the lamb myself. And so he's, he's got to prepare this meal for the guest. And so he's got all these cattle he can choose from. He can grab a cow, he can grab a sheep, he can grab a goat, he can grab whatever. But instead of taking something from his own flock, he goes next door to the poor man's house and he takes his one little ewe lamb and he kills it and he serves it up for dinner to his guests. This is another very sad story and the prophet Nathan is telling this story to provoke a reaction from David. And so he tells him the story. He says, what do you think of this man? In verse 5 of the passage, it says, David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan looked at him and he said, you are that man. Can you imagine the moment when it hit you? I am that man. That's what I did. What a hypocrite. The shame, the regret, the sorrow of what he's done must have just swept over his life in that moment. And I think on days like today, when we look at a passage and a character like David, it's easy for us to sort of shake our head and point our finger and say, tut, tut, he's a naughty guy. But the moment we do that, I think we too could find ourselves in a David situation where we realize that we too have many mistakes in our lives. We've made many mistakes over time. And every time we point the finger at someone else, there's always three that are pointing back at us. And if we're not careful, we can become like David. We're also busy pointing at the sins in other people's lives that we overlook the sin in our own. We look at others and we think, well, compared to them, I'm going pretty good. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as Glenn Burr. <laughs> He's a good guy to point out. He's a good sport. He's actually a good guy. I'm not as bad as other people. When I compare myself to them and I weigh up the scales, I'm actually doing pretty good. But Jesus warns about this, doesn't he, in Matthew 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye while ignoring the log in your own eye? Can you imagine that today? Somebody walks into church and you see them straight away because there's this big log sticking out of their eye. Can you imagine that? And they're walking around and they're knocking over the morning tea and they sit down and they crush the top of your skull because you're next to, next to them and the log hits you and they're clotheslining people as they walk around the place. Uh, you can imagine uh, that happening, but imagine this, that the guy with the log in the eye, he's here because he's obsessed with the speck in someone else's. And so he's here today trying to find that one person. He's like, come here, bro. You've got this speck in your eye. You can't possibly serve God when you've got that speck in your eye. At the same time, he clotheslines the guy because he's got the log coming out of his own. It's an absurd image. But it, it, it illustrates a, a powerful truth, and that is that we can often be blind to our own sin. Why? Because there's a log 
in our eye. It's hard to see when you've got a log in your eye. Nathan points out David's log, and it would have been a crushing moment. I wonder if you can remember a time in your life where you let someone down. Can you remember a time when you were racked with guilt because you'd done the wrong thing over and over again? Perhaps you're here today and you still feel that way. Maybe you betrayed a friend, made a mistake, dishonoured God in some way. Are there times in your life when you look backwards and when you think of those things that happened, you think of them with great regret? I know for me, there's many times in my life when I look back and I have great regret of the things that I've done. I know there are times like that for all of us, and they can certainly weigh on our mind. And unfortunately for many people, they allow the guilt and shame of past mistakes to cripple their future, and that's not what God wants for our lives. The Bible says there is no condemnation in Christ. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you can be crippled by guilt and shame. He died on the cross so you can be forgiven of it, that you can be wiped clean, that you can be a new creation, that you can live for him. That's the glorious news of the gospel. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've been through, Jesus died for every person who would call on his name. And when we call on his name, every sin we've ever committed, every sin we're committing, every sin we'll commit in the future is forgiven in Christ. It's wonderful news. Last weekend, the elders had a retreat. We went away to pray and plan on the weekend and to dream about the year to come. And it was a great time away growing in God and growing with one another. And to do our retreat, we got to stay at the most magnificent property in a place called Marysville. Now, this property is owned by a family friend of ours, and it's absolutely stunning. You've got these amazing log cabins built by the owner, Colin, manicured gardens, lawns, rock pools, fountains. It's surrounded all around by massive gum trees. There is wildlife everywhere, including snakes. As you go out in the balcony in the two-story log house, in the morning you open the door and down the bottom of the hill behind the gum trees, there's a flowing river and you can hear it flowing. It's peaceful. It's beautiful. It's like paradise. It's almost perfect. But on the 8th of February 2009, the day after Black Saturday, it was a very different story. Fire had terrorised Victoria, eventually ending in a death toll of 173 people, including 36 from the very small town of Marysville. Colin was away in Switzerland at the time skiing when he heard about the fires, but his parents, in their mid-80s at that time, were home alone in their small log cabin on the property. The fire swept over their property quicker than they could do anything about it. They couldn't get out. The water pumps were burnt. They didn't work. And at one stage, when the fire was at its fiercest, this elderly couple, overwhelmed by the smoke as their windows were literally melting, laid in the middle of their log cabin, they held hands, and the husband said to his wife, we've been married for 65 years, we've got nothing to complain about. And they went off to sleep. Surprisingly, when they awoke, everything had burned to the ground except their small log cabin house. It's a miracle they survived when absolutely nothing else did. Colin's beautiful double-story log cabin, absolutely stunning, was burned to the ground. The games and conference rooms they used for camps were gone. The trees, the gardens, the grass, the memories, all of his possessions, all completely wiped out. And it was replaced with blackness, smouldering ash, dirt, grime, destruction, utter devastation. And as I was thinking about that last week, I think it's a picture of what David's heart looked like. 
as he penned Psalm 51. He was a broken man, full of despair, guilt, shame, regret, sin, and blackness of his heart. And he says in verse 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. But as we gathered to pray last Saturday, I looked around Colin's property eight years after Black Saturday, and I no longer saw the blackness and devastation. Instead, I saw a picture of beautiful regeneration. The log cabins are rebuilt. The trees, flowers, grass, and wildlife have all regenerated in a magnificent way. From the ashes, something new and wonderful has come to life once again in what looked like a hopeless situation. There was new life. The blackness was replaced with light and color and vibrancy and growth. It was a beautiful scenic view as I looked out and then it hit me that what God did in nature on that property is what he can do in an even greater way in your heart and in mine. He can take the darkness, the blackness, the brokenness and he can create something new. This is the first, one of the first, this is the first of three things that David asked of God in Psalm 51. From that dark, broken place, he says in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. King David is widely acknowledged as a great king, a wise leader, and a man of God. We still take examples from his life, and we meditate on the words that he wrote thousands of years after he lived. But I reckon if David had the opportunity to revise his story before it went to print in Scripture, he probably would have wanted to edit out some of the details. I reckon he'd probably think, I'm happy for you to read about the great conquests, I'm happy for you people to read about my good deeds and my wise leadership. I'm happy for everyone to know that God said I'm a man after his own heart. But could we just take out 2 Samuel chapter 11? You know the one with the title, David and Bathsheba? Do people really need to hear that? Is that inspiring? Do they need to know all the nitty-gritties of my life? Can't they just know that I was a great king? You know, you and I have a luxury that David didn't have. We can hide the motivations and the thoughts of our heads and our hearts. And we can put up a front to people and say, uh, here's all the good stuff. This is who I am. But I think if any of us spend any more than a few moments with ourselves, we'll realize that we're not always good. And we can hide it from one another. But there's nothing we can hide from a God who knows everything. You know, a lot of people say, oh, that person's got a good heart. And it may be true in the sense that we're all capable of doing nice things. But I think deep down as we spend time with ourselves, we too know that our hearts left to themselves aren't always good. In fact, they often gravitate away from God into things that are evil. Prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jesus himself says, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Listen to this list, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Did he miss anything? What's that? Neighbours? Oh, yeah, neighbours is bad. Yeah, you missed that. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. The truth is that our hearts have been blackened by the devastating effects of sin. One thing David understood is that regardless of how good people thought he was, there was an evil in his heart that only God could change. That's why this psalm starts with those words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away all my iniquity. Blot out my transgressions by your great compassion 
and my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. After the prophet rebuked, uh, the prophet Nathan rebuked David that day, you'll notice his first response was repentance. He didn't blame someone else. He didn't divert responsibility. He didn't make excuses. He didn't try to find a way around it. He simply says, Lord, I have sinned against you. The very next words of the prophet Nathan were this, the Lord has taken away your sin. In the blackest, dirtiest parts of his heart, God says, I will create something pure. What a powerful thing it is to know that the Lord has taken away our sins in Christ. The prayer of this psalm, I think, needs to be the prayer of our lives every single day. Each of us, every day of our lives, need divine heart surgery. We need the God who created us to reach down into our hearts, into those dark, dirty places, the blackness of our lives, and create in us a pure heart, and then as an additive to that, to add a steadfast spirit within us, to stand on his word, and to do the things that please him, even when it's not convenient. Because it's only with a pure heart, created by God, that we can love him with all of our heart and love our neighbours as ourselves. Lord, would you create in us a pure heart at the start of 2018? Would you wipe the slate clean and help us to live for you? And I think this leads well to David's second request. The second request he makes is the Holy Spirit's presence. Verse 11 says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I think David knew how much we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. Each and every day in 2018, you need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. There's times you'll need his comfort. You'll need his boldness. We need his power. In 2018, there are many people that follow that are stepping up into new roles. Uh, On the diaconate, there's people stepping into roles in women's ministry. There's people joining the food van. There's others that are running courses. There are all sorts of new roles. And outside of the four walls of the church, there are people from this church who are also starting new jobs this year. They're having babies. They're moving house. And in all these different aspects of life, we desperately need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to live for him. There's not a day where I drive out of my garage with no petrol in the tank. Because I know if I do, I won't even make it to the end of the street. And so I make sure that my tank is not empty. And it's the same with us. Why would we step out of the house any day not relying and asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh so that we can live for him. We need his power in a world that increasingly hates Christ, in a world that increasingly opposes Christians. We need the Holy Spirit every day of our lives. We need to serve him from intimacy and overflow, not dryness and exhaustion. You know, I think sometimes when our motivations are wrong, we get very tired When our motivation is that we want recognition. Let me tell you, that's a dog that you can never feed enough. It always wants more. And if you're someone who wants recognition for everything you do, (laughs) that dog will always be hungry and you'll never find satisfaction. That's why we need the Holy Spirit because one of his roles, he keeps pointing us back to Jesus, reminding us who we serve and why we serve him. And so we need the Holy Spirit this year to empower us. And I want to encourage the people here that are doing new things this year, that you're stepping out in faith. God wants us to be out of the comfort zone, out of the boat, following him, being obedient. And I want to commend those that are stepping into new roles and doing new things, following obediently the call of Christ on your life. 
But I want to give you a warning with it as well. That if you rely on your own strength, your own wisdom, your own ability, and you're doing it for your own recognition, you are punching a one-way ticket to burnout. You might remember leading up to Pentecost, Jesus said to the disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem. But he said, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. He said, don't leave. Don't step out. Don't go anywhere. Don't try anything new until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when he comes upon you, go. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You go in the power of my Holy Spirit, I'll do supernatural, incredible things in my name through you. You'll do immeasurably more than you could ever ask, dream, hope, or imagine according to my power at work within you. That's the difference, church, the Holy Spirit makes. David was the king of Israel. But prior to him, there was a king called Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he started well as a king. And in 1 Samuel 10, it tells us that the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. But over time, Saul's heart became increasingly hard towards God. He was disobedient over and over and over again until eventually God said, I regret making you, Saul, king in the first place. And eventually in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and now came to rest powerfully upon David. David is writing this psalm with all this recent history in mind. He's reflecting on what's happened. He's seen what happened when the Holy Spirit's presence departed Saul and was no longer with him. His kingship fell apart. But on the flip side, he knew firsthand what it was like to be empowered by the presence and the Holy Spirit of God. As we read the Psalms, I think that we're reminded of David and how the Holy Spirit worked in his life. And so with a repentant heart, after doing this incredibly evil thing with Bathsheba, He says, God, please don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. As we read the Psalms, I think that David's desire for intimacy with God is unmatched by anyone else in Scripture. It's a great example to us. If King David needed the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need to be filled afresh every day by the Spirit of God? David needed a pure heart. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit. And he needed his joy restored. And this is the third thing he asked for. Verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Can you remember the moment you became a Christian? Can you remember the day you became a Christian? I can remember that moment for me. I'd grown up in a Christian home, but for the first 15 years, I'd never come to the point of accepting Christ, even though I'd heard about him all my life. I could tell you the gospel story like the back of my hand, but I'd never responded to Jesus. I'd never received him as Lord until one day a guest speaker came to Mentone Baptist Church when I was 15 years old. He preached a very simple but powerful gospel message. And for the first time in my life, it wasn't just a story I'd heard my parents say. I realized that day I needed a savior, that my heart was black, that I had done things that displeased God, that I had fallen short of his glory. And the only way I could be saved is to accept what Christ did for me on the cross, that he took my sin, to accept what he did through his resurrection, that he died in my place, conquering sin and giving me the hope of eternal life. At the end of that service, I couldn't get down the front of the church quick enough. And that day, I asked Christ into my life. And I wonder, is there a more glorious moment in life than the moment you accept Christ? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, in case you're wondering. 
I've been married. I've had my wedding day and it was a wonderful day. I've seen my kids born. That was absolutely phenomenal. My football team has not won a premiership, so I don't know what that's like. But regardless of how great those moments were in life, by far the greatest moment in my life was the moment I accepted Christ, when I was just hit by his presence and I went, wow, I don't deserve any of this. I deserve to pay the punishment for all the stuff I've done wrong. But Jesus left the glory of heaven. He came to earth and he died the most shameful death for the things I've done wrong. And in him, I can be forgiven. In him, I can have the hope of eternal life. Let me tell you, the joy that moment produced in my life is greater than any other joy I've ever experienced. And it's outlasted every other joy I've had in my life. And I remember after that moment that I just wanted to tell everyone. I I just wanted to get out of that building and just tell the world about Jesus and this great news that I had. I wanted everyone to know how incredible he was. And I did it so much, I think I drove everybody nuts. Perhaps I left Jerusalem too quick. I needed some wisdom to temper my zeal, but I wanted to live for him. I I wanted nothing more. I wanted to please him. I wanted to serve him. I wanted to know him in greater ways. Maybe you experienced that sensation as well in your life. But if you've experienced a sensation like that, you'll probably also know that joy can fade. It can fade in a marriage. It can fade in a job. It can fade in a hobby. Tragically, it can fade in our faith until we simply just go through the motions. A shell of ourselves when we first gave our lives to Jesus. And let me tell you the sad thing. The sad thing is when I look at the church in the West, it's predominantly what I see. Jesus says the love of most will grow cold. It's not hard to imagine because it's already happening. In the book of Revelation, there are seven letters that are addressed to seven churches. And the first one's to the church in Ephesus. And you look at them, they were a pretty good church. They were hardworking. They'd persevered. They didn't tolerate wicked people, but God gives them a stern rebuke. He said, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. These could easily have been the words of David in this psalm. They could easily be the words for some of us this morning. That's how you're feeling. If you've lost your first love today, ask God this morning at the start of a new year, Lord, would you restore the joy of your salvation in my heart? Would you remind me every day of all that you've done me? Would I be compelled again by the love of Christ? David asked God for a pure heart. He asked him for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he asked him for the joy of his salvation. I want to finish by pointing out the outworking of those things because it's found in verse 13. He says, create in me these things, and then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. The pure heart, the power of the Holy Spirit, the joy of salvation had an outward flow. It wasn't just to sit around feeling happy in a circle singing Kumbaya with some friends. It had an outward flow. There was a rebirth that happened in his life. It rebirthed a passion for mission. You know, genuine faith is only ever genuine faith when it has an outward expression. As we ask God to create in us a pure heart in 2018, as we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit every day, as we seek the joy of our salvation to be restored, I pray that the impact we would have in this community and beyond would be profound. And when we first planned and followed, there was this unbridled joy and passion for mission. And maybe that's faded for you. Maybe that's faded for me over the last couple of years. I pray this year we'd come back to it. That 
people who right now are far from God this year would come back to know him because God would work powerfully in and through us. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, I just want to say thank you for your word. It's so encouraging. It's so challenging. And Lord, I want to thank you for characters like David, who was a great man in many ways, but we're not spared from the details of the mistakes he made. And Lord, that makes a guy like David relatable. Because we look at him and we see elements of him in us. And we know that we fall short. And we know there's nothing we can do to create in ourselves a pure heart. We need your help. We need your blood shed for us at the cross. Would you come this morning and create in us a pure heart, those things that have crept in, that have brought blackness into our lives today. Wash us clean by your blood. Lord, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit this year, that as we go in our everyday lives on mission, that we would go in your strength and in your power and in your wisdom. And Lord, I pray that the joy of our salvation would be restored. Lord, I pray that the love of Christ would compel us, that we can't but help to serve you, to love you, to know you more. Lord, we thank you that you and you alone can do this in our hearts. So I pray that you would do it in each of us. In Jesus' name. Just while every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Today I've talked very basically about the gospel of Jesus, that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us have a black heart full of dirt and grime and sin and things that separate us from the love of God. But Jesus left heaven, he came to earth. And for all the things we've done wrong, he died on a cross, the most shameful death. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And he did it for every person that would call on his name and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did. I need you as my Lord and Savior. And once we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, he says he washes us clean. He gives us a purpose in this life. And he gives us the hope of eternity. It's the most incredible thing. And today, I just want to give an opportunity. I don't know everyone here today. But there's some people here I don't know, and I don't know where you're at with Jesus. And I want to give an opportunity today. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, if you've never come to that point of going, yes, I need you, Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity today. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, while nobody else is looking around, this is between you and God, I want you to lift your hand and say, Luke, that's me. If that's you this morning, I'd love to pray with you at the end of this service. So I said, for me, this was the greatest moment of my life. And I think there's a lot of testimonies in this room that people would say exactly the same thing. Don't leave this place not knowing that you're in relationship with God in Christ. So I'm going to ask again, is there anybody here today? And you say, yes, I want to accept Christ as my Lord. If that's you, just lift up your hand now. Lord, I pray that you continue to work in our lives. And I pray for those that are here that know you, I pray that you would strengthen their lives and help them to live for you in an incredible way this year. For those that are here that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you continue to work in their life, that you would make yourself real and known to them in a way that they would see who you are, that your love for them is incredible. And so I just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.